Hello, and welcome to another episode of Clark Hill's Credit Ego to Go, curbside thought leadership for financial services. My name is Joanne Needleman, and I am a partner at Clark Hill, as well as a member of the firm's banking and financial services practice group. Today on our podcast, I am joined by Ryan Kanan, CEO of DocFox, a digital tool which automates Bank Secrecy Act account opening and ongoing due diligence for business, high risk, and complex accounts, including cannabis, and we'll touch on that. DocFox currently works with over 160 financial institutions to reduce manual effort through advanced document processing with document inspection, data capture, and comparison of any document. DocFox recently applied this technology to help a California bank go live in two days to enable fully online and automated SBA PPP loan applications. Ryan, thank you so much for coming on to Credit Go to Go. Thank you, Jen. You know, it's interesting. I'm reading your bio. And um, would we have thought in January that banks would have to get online software for PPP loans? <laughs> Not something we would have expected. <laughs> there, are, there are plenty of messages that if yes. I were able to look forward in time and saw myself typing, that I would wonder what on earth had gone wrong in the world. <laughs> exactly, exactly. But, you know, it brings up a good point. I think the first thing I want to talk about is DocBox. It is a unique company. Uh, you've grown a lot in a short period of time. So tell us a little bit about your, your vision and your philosophy and, and what you're doing now. Sure. So, so DocBox is really an, an, an automated solution for banks to help them really streamline business account opening, right, which is a, a total nightmare. Um, and one of the ways we do that is we help to automate a whole lot of the compliance around BSA, uh, which for those you know, that, are, that are not necessarily in the space, um, is the regulation that is out there to try and prevent money laundering, right? So it's, it's essentially the checks that a bank has to do to make sure that they know who they're banking um, and that on an ongoing basis, they understand the flags or the concerning um, issues to look for um, that might indicate that um, um, essentially, you know, funds are being laundered through the institution. You know, understanding BSA and, and essentially what it means for banks um, is for them to know that they, they know who they're banking um, and they understand and can pick up the risks that might, that might come up with money laundering. We help to streamline that. So our whole, our whole mission is to try and make money laundering impossible and to shift and change compliance from being a, a handbrake and a roadblock in an organization to really enabling new business and enabling banks to enter new markets and service more people. You know, it's interesting, as we had just mentioned in the introduction, um, this pandemic has really forced financial institutions to, to think about technology. Not that they weren't before, but there were many that were kind of dancing around this relationship. And the pandemic really forced their hand in a lot of ways. And it seems to me that, and, and your example of the PPP loan application is, is, is spot on, that, you know, here we are, everybody, nobody was going to a bank to open up an account. They had to call somebody up and say, yes, I wanted to open it. Or they had to, if they weren't doing online banking before, they were certainly doing, doing it while we were all sheltering in place. So talk a little bit in the last three or four months, how your business has changed. Well, 
I think that what we've seen, which has been interesting, I think there's a couple of factors. So, I mean, we've seen, we, we've actually seen um, incredible growth, which we're very fortunate um, to be in an industry that, that, that has seen that. So we've seen a lot of growth uh, in the last few quarters, and I think it's down to a few things. One, our primary focus has been institutions that are not the major tier one banks, right? So, mm -hmm. so our clients are kind of a $100 billion and under with the bulk of our clients, um, I would say, sitting in $10 billion in, uh, in assets and under. And, under. Um, and I would say that there's been a shift in the country, which is that um, consumers saw that actually with the huge banks suddenly being inundated overnight with these PPP applications, you know, these huge banks are massive ships. They're these huge oil tankers. For them to shift overnight, it's very hard, right? Their mm -hmm. turning circle is like continents. <laughs> so, so for them to adapt to this huge influx of requests to be able to assist, you know, the disbursement of funds was always going to be incredibly complicated. What I think what, you know, the, the, that what I think people saw was that actually the regional and community banks, because they're smaller and more nimble, were able to really come out and help the communities a huge amount. And so whereas before, I think there was a perception that community banks were maybe becoming a bit outdated, that the credit unions were becoming a bit outdated. I think that this has done a lot to shift that, that, that perception, which is that actually a whole bunch of the smaller institutions were really there for people and were able to kind of turn on a dime um, and implement solutions very quickly to stay up all night, you know, get applications done and really help save people's businesses. And so I think for us, we've enjoyed the process of being able to help these institutions and organizations to implement technology in a fast, um, you know, time frame so that they can securely and safely take on new clients um, within a short amount of time. Um, and I think that institutions have realized that if they, if they need to essentially, um, you know, have a a quantum leap forward <laughs> in terms of how they do business within a very short period of time, they need to shift their thinking as to how do they partner necessarily then build or just rely on kind of like the standard processes that they've always done. Um, so I think that's been, you know, that's been our experience. And it's so important. Um, I, I agree with you. I, I think that, that certainly the PPP was a boon for business for the small and mid-sized banks. They were able to pivot on a dime a lot easier than larger ones, as you just mentioned. Um, answer me this, if you can. You're right. You know, we and you found your niche market in going to the smaller, uh, smaller banks or mid-sized banks. But there's hurdles there. You must agree. Um, budgets are smaller. Vision sometimes can be a little bit more compact. How do you make technology available and more mainstream for these smaller institutions? Well, well, I think like any market, um, you know, depending on, I mean, every market, you know, the, the, the model that we typically use is one from a, a book called Crossing the Chasm, right? which is a kind of a, a marketing theory book for technology companies. Um, okay. And it, it describes essentially a distribution in a market of buyers. Right. And so in terms of, you know, the, the kind of traditional uh, chasm theory, uh, it says that you've got your innovators, which are a tiny percentage in the front. Um, you essentially have this bell distribution, right? You've got your innovators, then you've got a slightly larger percentage who are your early adopters. Then you've got your early majority, which is a big chunk of the market. Then you've got your late majority, and then you've got your laggards. Those are the ones that are, that are, that are still using Blackberries. Um, <laughs> and, and, and I suppose if you look at any kind of market, which would include you know, community banks and kind of smaller institutions, the same logic applies. So, so you've got a number of, you've got a number of kind of very um, innovative institutions, which are actually the community banks that are, that are behind some of the largest new fintechs. 
So for example, you know, how does, how does Credit Karma open up bank accounts? They're not a bank. They're using a small community bank, right? Um, how does Robinhood function? Well, Robinhood, which is one of the fastest growing fintechs, is leveraging a community bank as their backbone. And so you've got about 15 to 20 community banks that are really at the cutting edge um, powering all these fintechs, right? So those are like your innovators. Then you've got like your next percentage of your early adopters um, who are the ones that um, have been embracing online account opening, have been embracing new technologies. And, and so I think that if you start to work through these different kind of areas within the market, so what you see is just an evolution over time, right? Um, and the way that that shifts and happens is as more banks and as more, as more of these institutions start to engage with fintechs and start to engage with reg tech companies, embrace new technology. So it kind of um, essentially through osmosis almost spreads throughout the market. But you're, you're always going to have your 30 to 40 percent who, who are really you know, not going to adopt new technology until it's, it's super cheap um, um, and kind of you know, commonplace. What are small, what are small and medium banks? What are, what are the, the top, you can name three things. What are the things that they're, they're looking for right now when it comes to technology? Um, I don't know that there's one answer. Um, okay. And I think it would probably depend on their size. So if I had to, if I had to break it down in terms of size and, I, and probably an opportunity, I, so I'm gonna have two lenses here. One is, mm -hmm. are they in financial trouble um, or are they thriving? Um, and, and there's many institutions that are in trouble because their clients are in trouble. You know, they were banking a lot of these small businesses that have shut down, um, right. you know, the interest rates have plummeted, which means they're not making that income um, in terms of interest-based income. Um, and so there's a lot of institutions that are in trouble. In terms of technology there, honestly, I don't think they're looking for new tech at this stage. They're just trying to survive. Um, right. so I would say those institutions, I don't think are, are really kind of out shopping for new technology. There's the other side, which are the ones that are thriving, right? Um, mm -hmm. And in terms of those, I would say that the slightly larger institutions, let's say 10 billion and up, um, are looking for technology that helps them with efficiency to be able to scale fast, um, which means across, um, which means basically, how do they do things like um, online account opening and identity verification? You know, we're seeing a lot of that. That's been a very crowded space. You know, so how do they do verification on mobile apps and, you know, biometrics and all the rest? Um, and then in terms of your smaller institutions, I think they're trying to say, how do they access more markets? And it really depends on, you know, what they're looking at. Some are looking at higher risk businesses, like we've seen and deal with a lot, which is which might be as simple as banking out of state, right? How do they open up accounts out of their out of their local region? Um, or it might be broader in terms of new high-risk high industries, whether that's cannabis, hemp, cash-intensive businesses, money services businesses. How do they broaden and diversify their revenues? Um, and typically, then the kinds of technologies they're going to be looking for is risk mitigation um, and how to streamline things like online account opening for those businesses where you know they're a state away or they're two states away. Um, and so it's not, it's not your traditional drive down the road um, and go and visit them. But honestly, since the person down the road isn't coming into the branch either, well then, hell, why not go, you know, state down, right? And, and, and open up your market if, you, if, if you're not seeing the client anyway, face-to-face. -face. It kind of, you know, makes you think, is there really going to be a, quote, community bank anymore? Community banks always pride themselves of being in the neighborhood and, and, and knowing the people where they live. But to your point, they could live anywhere. Uh, they could work anywhere. <laughs> so it, it'll, it'll be an interesting dynamic. Um, let's talk a little bit about uh, the FDIC a couple, uh, about a month or so ago, issued what is called a request for information on RFI. And um, the topic was developing a voluntary certification program 
to promote new technologies for FDIC insured banks. In the last couple of years, we've seen, and I'm sure you have witnessed, you know, financial service, federal financial service regulators are really trying to understand technology, see where that growth is and how it can better, better integrate with unfortunately a regulatory system that's very archaic. Um, most of the statutes, BSA in particular, uh, you know, that's 20 years old. Um, they didn't think of that there was going to be electronic information going back and forth. But I thought that the, seeing this RFI and reading it, I thought it was interesting. And I, I would love to hear your take on what opportunities you think that presents for fintech and bank partnerships. Well, look, I mean, I'm I was really excited to see it. And I think that the FDIC seemed to break it down into two major areas, right? The one they mm -hmm. spoke about was model validation. That was mm -hmm. the one part of it. And so, you know, seeking to essentially create standards um, for different models. I, I know they mentioned one of the big focuses was in lending, which is yep. certainly not my expertise, but makes a lot of sense intuitively. Um, um, and the other side was around vendor due diligence. Like, how do we make it easier for financial institutions to have a consistent way to perform vendor due diligence, especially if they're smaller and they don't have procurement departments, you know, um, as, as a larger institution might. Um, so it's probably helpful to break it down between those two. So I would say that the model validation piece I love, because one of the things that we see is across all the institutions, there's a huge amount of inconsistency around their risk frameworks, around their internal policies. And because so many of the acts, like you mentioned in terms of BSA, are left up to interpretation, which in many ways is understandable, by the way, because you can't have a set framework for everybody, right? Because right. The, the reality is that the banking landscape is so diverse, depending on state, depending on client base. So it is important that there's room for interpretation. But I do think that having model validation, which I think is localized to different industries, to different geographies, I think will be incredibly helpful and beneficial, both for fintechs to be able to support financial institutions, but also, um, you know, for financial institutions to get greater clarity, um, such that they're not, I mean, we get asked all the time for advice and assistance on how to structure, um, you know, how, for how banks can maybe structure their, their risk policies. And, we, you know, we're not a law firm, we're not, you know, we're not a compliance consultancy, we typically partner with many and we end up referring them in. Um, um, but that speaks to a need, right? And that, and that demonstrates a need to me. Um, on the due diligence side, I think it's really helpful because I can tell you right now, as, an, as, a, you know, as a SaaS product, as a you know, software provider, mm -hmm. I would, you know, we anyway have to go for, you know, kind of certifications out there, whether, you know, the fact that we're SOC certified or looking out for different standards that can give our clients comfort. Um, but we take it very seriously. So if the FDIC had a certain framework that we could say and self-certify against and say that we comply with, I think it's fantastic because I think it gives the bank, um, you know, some guidance as to say, what are the things you ought to be checking for? Um, and I think the smaller the institution goes and the less resources they have, uh, the more beneficial it is. I mean, I, I, I thought it was a great move and I was, I was pretty excited to see it. I am too. It's going to be interesting to see the comments and uh, I hope it doesn't take them too long to put this program together. Unfortunately, regulators, uh, their timelines are a lot different than ours, <laughs> but I, I agree with you. I can't let you go uh, without talking a little bit about cannabis, because as you say, you know, w one of the successes of your company is working with high risk accounts. I don't think you can get any more high risk than cannabis banking. It was interesting. So uh, I'm in Pennsylvania and yesterday uh, the governor announced that um, he's going to recommend that uh, cannabis uh, be legalized for recreational use. We have it as medical use as most states now. And Texas has done that, a couple other states have done that, and, and that's just been because of the result of COVID. Uh, state um, 
budgets are just you know blown into pieces uh they're they're in they they have money troubles and they need to raise revenue and uh it seems that everybody's now starting to step in line and realizing that cannabis can be one avenue in which revenue can be generated but as you know it's very difficult to bank cannabis and I would like to hear from you, you know, how your product has helped banks and where you see um, banks maybe more embracing the idea uh, of banking these businesses and offering financial services to them under the circumstances. So that's a really, there's a couple of reasons why a bank might start banking cannabis. Um, broadly speaking, there's two. The one is the revenue opportunity mm-hmm. uh, um, you know, that they see in their particular market. And the other is usually a community out of community concern, which is about saying, how do we, one, help local businesses to actually get bank accounts? Otherwise, it becomes very hard for them. Or right. and two, how do we just look after the security of our community? Because they want, they want to get cash off the street, right? Um, and so, so those are typically the, the two main reasons. And often it's, you know, the, the two combined. Um, the challenge is, is that if you're a community bank, you're not, you don't typically have a high-risk banking portfolio. I mean, there are some certainly that we work with uh, and there's some larger institutions we work with who have experience with high-risk bank accounts. But, you know, some of these institutions don't even have very complex business accounts. So the step up from a, you know, from only ever de- dealing with, you know, small, you know, sole proprietorships to jumping to, you know, um, incredibly complex, um, um, you know, high-risk cash-intensive organizations because is, is a, it's a quantum leap <laughs> in compliance right. in terms right. of what it's required. And typically would require an entire division within a bank, right? Where, where they may have teams of 10, 15, 20 people just focusing on this. So what we help to do, and we, we do this across all institutions, is we, I just don't believe that people should be bogged down doing admin that can be automated through, through computers and software. And so what we do is we take away a whole bunch of the admin of checking documents, checking information, reaching out to clients for additional documents and data, you know, going and doing online searches and background checks, et cetera. And, and we automate and streamline it such that we can reduce human error, but also so that we can allow BSA departments and bankers to spend time really applying their discretion. Because honestly, there's no silver bullet around this stuff, right? The, the secret actually is that community banks are very well placed to apply discretion because boy, do they know their market and mm-hmm. boy, do they know their clients. And so there's no one better to be able to spot suspicious activity than those that truly and, and in a very close fashion really, really know their customers which means my, our, our sole focus at DocFox is to remove their time from checking documents and managing folders and making sure they've got everything and you know, making sure the names match up. We can automate all of that so that they can really spend their time applying their discretion you know, on accounts. Um, so that's really how we help them and, and at least a taste of, you know, some, of the, um, you know, some of the thinking at least in terms of the, the motivators for going into the space. It's fascinating. And I think you're going to be busy in that area in the next year. I just think that more states, as I say, hungry for tax revenue, hungry for revenue in general, um, are going to be look, looking for ways to expand legalization. And uh, while it's great, you know, I always say great, but we haven't really touched the banking issue. <laughs> I feel like calling the Pennsylvania governor saying great idea, but what do you, what's your department of banking going to do about it? So I wish you a lot of luck with this, Ryan. I think, uh, I think your product is really onto something and uh, it, it's certainly going to expand uh, as technology expands uh, post-COVID. So thank you so much uh, for your insight. But before I let you go, um, I, I ask some things of my guests uh, for coming onto the podcast. And the first is uh, we always ask our guests 
um, for their to-go experiences while they were sheltering in place, since this is a to-go theme podcast. And do you have a do you have a, uh, a experience you'd like to share with us? Well, I suppose in, the, in that theme, uh, you know, if I think about obviously, you know, restaurants have obviously been hit terribly, right? Um, right. And the damage then, and and um, I thought it'd be nice to highlight what one of my friends have done. Um, he has a business that that essentially does um, does corporate food delivery, right? So they would package meals and deliver them um, to to different corporates, and obviously that they, they ended up having a whole bunch of extra capacity. Um, and so what they ended up doing was getting people to sponsor meals um, for hospital workers. Um, and they ended up leveraging all of their logistics to be able to go to local restaurants, purchase meals from the restaurants, and then um, essentially deliver them through to all the local hospitals, which I thought was amazing. And I think one of the incredible things to see is just people's ingenuity during this time in terms of combining, you know, how do we support our frontline workers and how do we support local businesses leveraging like existing infrastructure? So I just thought that was I was very proud of him and I, and I thought that it was an amazing, amazing initiative for me that at least stuck out um, as one of the things that I saw, you know, that was here in Miami um, that, that really impressed me. That's a wonderful story. And, and you're right, the ingenuity you're hearing of people and how the, the survival of businesses and, and doing what they can, may, you know, pivoting as on the drop of a dime and then doing something good in the process. That's terrific. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. I really appreciate that. And finally, uh, in consideration of your time and coming onto the podcast, uh, Credit Eco to Go would like to make a donation on your on your behalf to a local food bank or charity that is is helping either restaurant workers or displaced workers because of the shutdown. And do you have an organization in mind? I do. Thanks, and I and I really do appreciate this. So thank you. I mean, Joanne, thank you for having me on, and thank you for everything that you've done. And, and I'd like to nominate the Miami Dade College Foundation. Um, mainly just because of the work that they're doing into the, in the community where they're taking people that have lost their jobs um, and they're training them up, um, especially those that, that have lost their jobs and maybe don't have prior education um, or formal education. And they're training them up to do um, some really amazing jobs like you know, being, becoming new Tesla technicians. Um, and those that, for example, have, have issues around childcare because their kids, uh, you know, their, their kids are not at they're school. Home. Right. <laughs> they're, they're helping them out with that too, which I love. So they, they've really kind of thought about this holistically um, and I think that they're doing, you know, amazing, amazing work. So, um, so I'm very grateful for, for, you know, for that gesture. Excellent choice. Excellent choice. Well, Ryan, thank you so much. Uh, love to have you come back on the podcast in the, in the next several months to see um, the growth of financial services technologies and, and, and what's happening post COVID. So please, uh, we hope we can talk again very, very soon. Thank you uh, to our listeners for uh, joining the podcast today. For more information about Credit Eco to Go, about our uh, podcast that we've recorded and future podcasts, please go on to my bio page at clarkhill.com or to my LinkedIn page. All episodes of Credit Eco to Go can be found on Buzzsprout and Spotify. If you'd like to be a guest on the show or have ideas for future show topics, please email us at creditegotogo at clarkhill.com. Thank you, be well, and stay safe. This podcast is intended for general education and informational purposes only and should not be regarded as either legal advice or a legal opinion. You should not act upon or use this publication or any of its contents for any specific situation. 
Recipients are cautioned to obtain legal advice from their legal counsel with respect to any decision or course of action contemplated in a specific situation. Clark Hill PLC and its attorneys provide legal advice only after establishing an attorney-client relationship through a written attorney-client engagement agreement. This recording does not establish an attorney-client relationship with any recipient.